And today on Fuzzy Logic, we are going to be talking cancer. We're welcoming back to the program, old friend of the show, or young friend of the show, I should say, Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. But first, we're going to talk about intelligence. And uh, I made an interesting observation about our listeners out there to Fuzzy Logic, and that is a large number of you are not human. In fact, we suspect aliens. Now, Charlie, there's something about the popular imagination of aliens that they have big almond-shaped heads, green skin, grey skin, and that says something more about the popular imagination, I think, does it not? Oh, I think you're right. I think there are three types of aliens. There's one type that are out to kill us all. They're evil aliens. Another type are very, they have big heads, and so they're very wise. And another type are very sexy, so we can have sex with them. So those are the three types of aliens. Uh, well, well, the other type, uh, oh, and I should say welcome. <laughs> Good morning, Eleanor. <laughs> oh, hello. I just snuck in. <laughs> uh, w- welcome to the show, and uh, we're, we're going to be talking about cancer and you've got a particular uh, view on that so we'd like to hear about that but uh, back to the aliens now aliens tend to be one of two sorts either they're things with long tentacles dripping fangs and they're kind of like the archetypal nasty monster so they're all sort of the pseudo friendly ones or the, the 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 nasty ones but charlie when we're talking about alien life and now your title i should explain is astrobiologist that's one of your many titles is there anything we can say about so-called alien life well one thing that uh, people are looking for the program seti for example the search for extraterrestrial intelligence so what we're doing is using radio telescopes to look for radio signals produced artificially by other sentient other intelligent organisms that may have evolved on other planets Um, so matter of fact uh, yuri milner a few months ago gave a hundred million dollars to such a search and parks uh, radio telescope is becoming heavily involved in that so something like a quarter of its time is now dedicated to looking for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence so but the question is what is intelligence right now operationally for those radio telescope operators all they have to worry about i don't care what intelligence is all i care about is the ability to produce a signal that i can pick up that is differentiated from natural emissions from stars and galaxies so um, that would be a meaningful uh, signature. But let's go back a little bit, and for the benefit of the people who haven't heard our earlier conversations on fuzzy logic, uh, can we say what we think life is? Well, life—you know—there are a lot of things that have that are very, very hard to define. For example. Beauty is something that's, you know, some people have, oh, she's beautiful or he's really good looking. And, and uh, you say, well, no, I don't think so. She, For example, I look at pictures of models and they're supposed to be the, you know, the acme of beauty. And I see this, oh, she's ugly. I don't like her. And there's so many models because they're just grimacing and they're unsatisfied and they think they're too cool. I said, that is ugly to me. But I guess somebody must find them beautiful. Anyway, so beauty has is problematic and very subjective, right? It's, a, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Well, in many ways, intelligence intelligence is, is susceptible to that type of subjectivity. For example, there are so many different kinds of intelligence. You know, somebody who is intelligent who can do chess and other people is intelligent who can... You, you might even say that somebody who can kick a soccer ball really accurately and move very beautifully. Uh, you'd say, hey, they have an intelligent body. You know, I, I don't think there's any limit to the amount of subjectivity that can destroy your wish for a very precise definition for, of intelligence. And um, would you say it's also a very human-centric thing we like to think of ourselves as the clever ape you know we are so smart here we are on the radio we write books we can do mathematics and that's right i think if we were elephants we would be talking about nasalization rather than uh cephalization well i'd like to quote this little bit from a book that i've been reading and it in fact is what gave me the idea for our topic the first half of our show today and it's uh, by anthony barnett and it's called the story of rats it's actually really interesting reading readable uh, book and people sort of recoil a bit at rats but they're really interesting animals and uh, so he says the intellect the intellectual differences between species have been much debated early darwinism led to the idea of a scale of intelligence in the animal kingdom with of course homo sapiens at the top 
as late as 1980, a writer obsessed with the intelligence quotient went further and proposed a graduation of types from amoeba to hypothetical extraterrestrial eggheads, each place by its IQ. Now that's uh, that's sort of pretty much along the theme that you were just saying, is it? Well, I, I mean that such a view is easy to make fun of, and but I would I would differ with the the author in the sense that he said the early Darwinism led to that. I think that that is an idea that people have had since uh, time immemorial that we've thought ourselves better because we have a giant brain, and uh, compared to other things. Uh, but but when I think of rats, I think of their incredible ability to smell things. The same thing as my dog. I think of how stupid human beings are when it comes to olfactory perception. So, for example, my dog can smell all kinds of things and, and understand and and feel and be sensitive to a whole world of smells that I'm just, mm, what's that? I have nothing. I can smell nothing. So it's, and then on the other hand, I say, the ball's over there, Dilly, you stupid dog. <laughs> and I can see, because I'm standing above the grass and, and uh, I can see the ball. And I say, there it is, there it is. And, and she will look and look to smell and smell and smell and smell and finally it's there. So in the dark, however, she's got it heads over heels over me because I can't see anything and she's smelling. It's it's probably even better to smell in the dark. So I think we as human beings need to appreciate how stupid we are when it comes to smell. That's something that we have lost over over the millions of years. Well, we're, we are pretty hopeless on that, on that sense. And I'm really glad you brought up dogs because I wanted to mention my dog, Oscar. But before I do, one possible definition, tell me, you will, of course, if you disagree, is... Uh, Intelligence can be described as problem-solving in a novel situation. That's one type of intelligence. That, that's a very common one, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so now Oscar, Oscar, who's a little border terrier, a cute little dog, all sad and neglected at home on his own right now, he knows when we're about to go out. He has some highly tuned sensitivities that give him the cues, and it's really subtle. I kind of watch how he does this. So he seems to know that there's some activity around the house, that we, we could get out of our chairs, we wander around, uh, we pick up the car keys... Mm -hmm. Pick up a bag. That seems to be a really big one. And then he starts looking all... Uh, first of all, he's, you can see his eyebrows going up and down. <laughs> and he goes, you guys are up to something. And then as we start heading towards the back door, then he gets all whiny. So that, that's that's an example of intelligence, and that's that's, that's sort of a human-like intelligence, is it not? Well, I, I, your description there, I would sense that you're underestimating his intelligence by a factor of 10 in the sense that the first time he hears those keys being picked up, he knows exactly that you're going to leave very soon. But the question is he doesn't care that much about it. He kind of, okay, they're going to leave. But I don't think he has to wait until other clues come. Uh, dogs, I think, are we underestimate them all the time. Oh, I'm not underestimating. I'm saying how, how smart he is. I know you're trying to say that and I'm disagreeing with you and I'm saying that you are still underestimating him is what I'm saying. And he takes that, that very first clue and, and yeah. runs with it. I really want to give my dog a shout-out now because I feel <laughs> feel like he's left out. Hi, Theodore. Um, he's very clever, but... Uh, but wait, but whose dog is smarter, my dog or your dog? Oh, well, clearly my dog because, okay. no, he's um, he's blind now, which is, well, he's, he's getting very close to being blind. And one of, the, one of the things that upsets us so much about that, I think, is the fact that we are very vision-centric, just as you were saying before, Charlie. We completely underestimate the, the role that the olfactory sense plays in these creatures we see them uh you know through our own human uh lens which is if you're blind oh no that's a disaster but he he doesn't seem that fussed at all because he can still right, right. do what he needs to do and right, he right. gets was, around with his nose one time i was thinking about trying to make a television for a dog you know and dogs it's hard for them to, you know I'll, I'll be watching television with my wife and there'll be a dog on there and and our dog dilly doesn't pay much attention to it but i was thinking how could we make a television that would be interesting to this dog i think one thing would be uh to have smells and to have maybe some to to impregnate the the air with smells and then have it blow through and then have the dog on some kind of treadmill and the tread is running and running and running and, and then you change the smells and I guess sound as well but very very little role for vision some role for vision but not very much 
Oh, and I should say, uh, during the show, we're on Twitter now, which is a great day for the nation. Yeah, it's very um, exciting. Yeah. Uh, if, you are, if you are keen to reach us uh, live during the show, uh, head on to Twitter. Our hashtag at sign call sign thing is at fuzzy logic sci, so the first half of science there. So fuzzy logic SCI, all one word. Uh, and we have our first tweet relevant to the show. Someone's listening. Uh, this one's from Jeremy, who says that you can't equate perception with processing power. So the idea of dog smell versus human intelligence, there's a difference between so perceiving something and then taking that and processing it, I suppose. So that's, thanks, Jeremy. That's just one of the inputs then, is that not? Well, no. I mean, the, I would disagree with that because any any input has to be processed. And that, for example, you have a your dog smells something at night and then that smell has to be processed. Okay, what does it remind you of? How strong is it? Where is it coming from? You know, these are all the things that we do when we look at vision. So uh, we have a process center in the back of our brains that processes the vision center. The olfactory lobes underneath the forebrain are what process the uh, smells. And we know by comparing our brain and our olfactory lobes to other brains that our olfactory lobes are tiny. They're just almost atrophied. And that's why our smell is so bad. That's where smells are processed. And dogs and other creatures, many other creatures, most other creatures, other animals have much larger processing of their olfactory senses. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by processing, too, because uh, I think we're talking about a type of logic here, aren't we? Isn't I think that might be what Jeremy's alluding to. I would say that most uh, most processing is is irrational. I think it has the emotional content goes. Is there's an emotional filter first before you use your rational brain? I think most of the rational part that we're so proud of is probably five, ten percent, even less of I'll, the amount of processing that goes on. Just quickly before I throw it to Eleanor, um, you mentioned dogs and television. Now, in our Ask Fuzzy column some time ago, we actually did a question on that, and we found that dogs are more sensitive to flicker, which was one thing. But there is, in fact... Flicker? What do you oh, mean? The oh, flicker, the oh. flicker, the visual flicker. Oh. <laughs> and, get, get this, you can go to a web channel called Dog TV. And we'll put a link up to that story on now. The Lassie and other dogs being heroes and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> they're not dog stories in the sense, but they're, they're, they're visual images that the producers think are interesting to dogs. But no smells. No smell. No, well, then, no, they're, sorry, then they're missing the major sorry, processing Sorry, Oscar, sense. and <laughs> no smell. Well, I kind of... Uh, this, is, this is something we spend a lot of time watching on YouTube because we clearly don't have enough to do. But the videos of uh, ravens solving relatively complex problems are sort of fascinating fascinating to watch. Have you seen any of those? Yeah, yeah, I have. And that's sort of, I mean, I guess, once again, in this very human-centric view of what intelligence is, that seems to be higher up on the on the ladder uh, when we observe that. I mean, these are videos where a crow or a, a raven of some sort has to get to a, a treat of some description. Mm -hmm. First of all, they need to find a stick that's the right length to activate a little switch inside a box, and they do that, and it releases another stick that's a bit longer, and they then use that longer one to scoop the food out. And That's there's these huge Rube Goldberg-type machines that, that ravens can navigate and figure out how to manipulate. Have you heard of the one where they drop the pebbles into the jar of water to yeah. make the, the food float up? Mm. I think that's just... That's amazing that they can do that. Reminds me of Aesop's fables. Well, well it's just that somehow they've got some logical model that, that is able to say uh, food, water, pebbles, uh, not in the sense that we would do it. Well, I, I think the, we shouldn't forget what's going on here. We have an emotional attachment to being special. We want to be different. We want to be better. We're vain. And so we identify, we identify something called intelligence that we want to have and other creatures do not. So, for example, for a long time as I, when I was growing up, when I was your age, Eleanor, the test of intelligence was playing chess if you were it's good at chess, you are smart. And then along about 10 years ago, the computer that can now beat any human alive. And now they said, oh, you know what? That's a really, that's not a good, that's not a good test of intelligence. So I think this is going on for a long, long time. We will, as computers get smarter and smarter doing this task or that task, we will then redefine what intelligence is. So we are the sole owners of this ability. And that is a, called a moving target. That's what I call vanity rather than science. <laughs> Yes, well, being being a human, I'm, I guess I, I'm attached to a certain view, just like I guess any. I'm any sorry, you should embrace your animal side. It really is worth embracing. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't want to see that. <laughs> I do, I do. I see it right now. <laughs> see it right now. You're well, panting. You're a little bit red. You're laughing. You're moving your hands around. 
Okay, well, we, we should turn the webcam on here in the Fuzzy Logic studio and our guest today. Uh, the voice you can hear there is Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. I didn't expect. We can talk about that for an hour. <laughs> Now I completely lost the plot. No, well, I'm just saying that you should not forget that most of the brain that we're so proud of is not doing the things of creating language and thinking rationally. It's doing, you know, what Captain Kirk specialized in. Said, hey, where there's a woman, oh, oh let's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, we have emotional lives, I think, that dominate us, and sometimes we're proud of how we can suppress that, but other times we're very proud of how we unsuppress it. Uh, and the other animal in the studio, apart from me, Rod, is... Uh, uh, Eleanor <laughs> and uh, Charlie you kind of remind me of uh, a part of my book that I've been writing I'm, I'm writing a book about sound about how we experience the world of sound and one little fascinating snippet I found is that birds experience time differently to us and I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise but people have analysed birds song right and they've slowed down by a factor of 10 or more right and they discover that all these little intricate details in a bird song that we humans just don't notice so there is our, uh, our bias, I guess, is to see the world, as you're saying, uh, from whatever perspective we, we have. Yes, there's a lot of things that you and I do that the birds don't notice. Ah, true, true. Now, <laughs> it's mutual, this lack of knowledge of each other's worldviews. Now, let's, uh, we might break to a quick track, but when we come back, I want to ask you about, uh, because we opened the show with aliens and, you know, our funny little green men and so on. Let's hit this track. Actually, I'm going to play a promo, and uh, which was you, in fact, Charlie. And then let's talk about alien intelligence <coughs> here on... <laughs> <laughs> oh, where is it? Come on. Uh, I'm not getting any sand out of this thing. What's going on? Uh, Tweet us if you know how to fix the soundboard. <laughs> Dr. Charlie Lineweaver, Mount Stromlo Observatory, ANU. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only... There is no ether. And the sound is rattling around your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks, quantum weirdness. That's what you are. The universe is a strange place. Stranger than you imagine. Stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX. That journey you call me quick That journey you call my name That journey you have its way And have me wandering all my days That journey you call me quick That journey you call my name That journey you have its way And have me wandering all my days And when they lay me down To rest in my earthly grave And when they lay me down Navigate that big sky away But in the meantime I got my duty in the meantime, in between time. I got to do this in the meantime, in between time. I'm pushing through this in the meantime, in between time. I got, I got my duty. Fuzzy Logic, and we are talking intelligence. Later on the show, we'll be talking cancer. And I've got a list of music requests, so we'll play that too. A bit of Irish jig there for you, Jenny. And I hope you're enjoying your Sunday here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, before the song, I promised that we were going to discuss alien intelligence. Now, there's something about we humans finding intelligence out there off the world in a distant galaxy or distant star, but it's a very human-centric thing. What can we say about the possibility of, well, given the fact that we have trouble even defining the term intelligence, uh, what would we say about so-called alien intelligence, Charlie? Well, as we were talking about earlier, it depends on how you define it. For example, um, many people would like to define intelligence such that human beings are the only ones who have it or have the most of it in uh, on the earth. And uh, that's interesting because I, <laughs> uh, 
it's kind of like whatever I am is intelligent. Now, you could ask yourself the question, and astrobiologists are wondering, okay, should we expect human-like intelligence elsewhere? Well, because there's a so-called intelligence niche. That is that what we have, this intelligence that we have, is so useful and so adaptive that it has led to our success here on Earth, and therefore it would lead to the success of other intelligent creatures, human-like intelligent creatures on other planets. Now, this is something that can be tested, and I think it has been tested, and the test tells me that there is no such thing as a human-like intelligence niche. Uh, So, for example... You have a brain that's about, you know, about a couple of liters or a liter and a half or something. Actually, it's the size of a planet. Okay, size of a planet. Okay. And and we know that our brains increased in size, tripled in size in about three million years. So three million years is how long it took us to get this big brain that uh, enables us to, I don't know, speak English or speak any language and uh, make fire and, I don't know, make radio. Uh, So three million years. Now, we know that on New Zealand, New Zealand was independent of the other continents. So each independent continent was acting as a long-term experiment in evolution. What does evolution produce? So you can ask yourself the question, if there is such a thing as this intelligence niche, on the 100 million years time frame that New Zealand was by itself, what is it that evolved into this niche? And the answer is, Who knows? It doesn't seem to be anything. You can ask the same question about Madagascar. That was independent for about 80 million years. The same question about South Africa, South America, another 100 million year independent experiment. And on each of these independent experiments with millions and millions of species, many of them with vertebrates, you do not get anything that we would recognize as something that evolved towards filling the human-like intelligence niche. That tells me that this thing that we're imagining, these functionally equivalent human beings, elsewhere in the universe is just a silly idea because our closest relatives are here on earth and if we want to define intelligence so narrowly that we're the only ones who have it on earth then it's it's silly for us to pretend that they, it exists elsewhere now i should say that in doing this i'm calling carl sagan silly because he thought that there are many ways to become functionally equivalent human beings and that's why he thought the search for extraterrestrials was uh, worthwhile i think it's worthwhile but simply because you're looking at different parameter space and whenever a scientific instrument is constructed to look at different parameter space you always find something new and interesting but to be motivated by a search for uh, this uh, human-like intelligence I think is, is kind of silly based on the evidence we have here it's, it's sort of like we're trying to find our brothers and sisters, our family members somewhere. It's, it's like a family search, isn't it? I call it the search for Prester John. In the Middle Ages, the Christians there said, uh, you know, Christianity is so great. It's such a universal feature of, of culture that it should exist elsewhere. And so when they did, went traveling elsewhere, they didn't see anything. But so they imagined that Prester John, some Christian uh, father, went and there's a whole community of Christians somewhere. And that's what I think we're looking for. Hum- we're looking for a community community of human-like intelligences that uh, have recognized, like we do, that we are great. So could, could we say that one definition of intelligence might be the ability to exploit an environment? Uh, in you know, you, do beavers do that? What what life form does not exploit its environment? I think every life form does it. That's what it means to be alive. Oh, how about adaptability then? Every life form adapts as well. Every life form. Okay, now what... That's ab- what's called transmembrane proteins. They're always adapting. They're always sensitive to their environment. They're always changing their structure depending on that. Okay, so is there a, a trend towards... This is not necessarily intelligence, I suppose, but a trend towards complexity in life? Well, some people think that, and um, I, I think there is yes and no. The reason why I say yes and no is kind of like uh, if you go to America and you see the 1% of people getting richer and richer and richer and 99% getting poorer and poorer and the increasing economic inequality, would you say that the country is getting – you think there's a general trend towards getting richer? I would say no, there is not. But what we're doing when we say and we uh, focus on this increasing complexity, we're looking at the 1%, ignoring the 99% and saying, oh, look at that. It's an increase. Everybody's getting richer. Everything's getting more complex. But that complexity comes at the expense of exporting entropy, making the rest of the universe less capable of producing these, the 1%, the really rich, the really complex things. Well, if we want to talk about how so-called smart humans are, we've just look at what we're doing to the planet as a whole and our own future now, how, how smart is that? Are we 
Now, wait, well, I, th- I think it's important to be stupid, if you matter of fact. I think that, uh, for example, this tripling of the brain case in, in, uh, in three million years, you could ask the question, well, why isn't it bigger? Why in the last 40,000 years don't we see? When we look at skulls that are 40,000 years old from early Homo sapiens, we don't see any difference between now and then. That could, that, that, that could have changed. If there was selection for bigger brains, our brains could be twice as big. And I, so I think it's important that we not be too smart. I don't know if you know, I, the smart people I know, they, you know, they can't, they're so smart they can't fall asleep, or they're so smart they do, they study the beauty of a flower for the rest of their lives, and then they never talk to anybody, and they die, or they can't, you know, I think that's what I sometimes would call smart, but it obviously is also very stupid. So I, I'm really confused about what, I've never heard a smart person able to tell me what intelligence was. Uh, okay, so is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, try saying that after a beer, is that a flawed idea, or is it, is it worth doing? No, like that, I'm, I support the idea, uh, but only because they're producing new instruments and looking at new parameter space and high-frequency things that we haven't looked at before. And when, when any scientist does that, they usually find something new and interesting. Uh, but I am I'm very much against the prime, what most of these scientists use as their prime motivation, and that is they believe that there is a universal trend in evolution to produce human-like intelligence and radio telescopes, and that's what I think the evidence suggests is not the case. Point it, it's important to note is that most of the people doing this are not biologists, they're physicists. Physicists think they're really smart, they have big brains, and biologists, I think, have a much better understanding of the complexity and uniqueness of every species. So we're not likely to pick up a fuzzy logic beam to us from Gliese 578 or whatever it's called, so many million light. It's Unless it's an echo. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 we do get the occasional tweet from out there, so we, we know there must be something going on. We, we might break to uh, a bit of Scottish music, something to live in your day here on Fuzzy Logic. And when we come back, let's talk a bit about cancer, which is another great topic that we've discussed here before. <laughs> <laughs> and the Wookiee, uh, the Wookiee here who's spared us a, a special visit from Star Wars yeah, on Fuzzy Logic with me, Rod and Eleanor. Get those knees up. Get a bit of exercise here on your Sunday. We don't want you sitting around the lounge chair just cogitating and doing the crossword puzzle, Sudoku, or drinking beer or patting your dog. We want you dancing and we want you thinking aloud because today on Fuzzy Logic, where our guest is <laughs> Dr. Charlie Lionweaver and Eleanor, and we've been discussing well, intelligence and we're going to move into cancer now. But there's a nice little crossover here because it touches on what science is, how the science process works but before we get into that part of it let's get you Charlie to give us a replay give us a quick potted story about the atavistic model of cancer the ancient origins of what you and uh, your colleague Paul Davies think might be the origin of cancer okay so uh, cancer is you when your cells uh, cells in your colon or cells in your brain do not differentiate and become the normal brain cells or the colon cells but rather they become undifferentiated or de-differentiated um, now you should to put that in perspective when you you used to be every one of us used to be a single cell if you had the sperm and the egg come together you were one cell and that divided and divided and divided and in those initial divisions there's very little differentiation that goes on but as this the hunt dozens of cells turn into hundreds to thousands to millions to even trillions there are more cells in your body than there are stars in the milky way for example uh, these cells turn into about uh, 200 to 300 cell types so they get differentiated and then they have been restricted to what's called the Hayflick limit, and that is that there's the number of divisions is limited. You can imagine if the number of divisions were not limited, the things would just be divide and divide and divide, and you'd turn into a big blob. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So there has to be a limit, and that limit is called the Hayflick limit. 
Now, some parts of your body obey that, and other parts, they, they kind of obey it temporarily. For example, the lining of your mouth or the lining of your colon, or that when, uh, when you eat something, a lot of the interior lining gets sloughed off and goes away, and then your body has to produce new cells. So you are allowed, the cells that are there are allowed to you know, divide again. Same thing if you get a cut on your hand. You know, the, the skin then recognizes, oh, I need to start reproducing again. But if you do not get a cut, it doesn't start reproducing. Cancer, however, is when you do not get a cut and it starts to reproduce. In other words, it uh, gets unbound from this hayflick limit and Un- keeps unregulated, unregulated cell growth, cell, cell proliferation. That's one way to summarize what cancer is. Now, now the question is. Where did these, this Hayflick limit, where did the regulation come from? Well, the obvious answer is it had to evolve sometime. And it evolved at the same time that cell differentiation evolved. So you look at back in the, in the evolutionary record and say, okay, when did cellular differentiation evolve? And, that, and that's the same time as when multicellularity evolved. And so sometime in the last 1.5 billion to about 500 million years is when the cell differentiation and the suppression of mitosis, the suppression of the, and the control of the proliferation evolved. So our, our model is that when, um, when cancer, uh, when there are random, when there are random mutations which undo the suppression of this proliferation, in other words, when the cells say, yahoo, I can divide again like I used to. Remember the first two and a half billion years of life on this planet, there was no regulation of cellular division. You divided, 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 divided. That's what you do. That's what all life has at its core, and that is a very protected uh, ability. And so cancer loses its ability to become a liver cell or a lung cell or a a colon cell, but regresses to what we've called an earlier atavistic stage in which it still remembers the most fundamental things, and that is divide, 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 but has not had... Um, is not able to differentiate. Uh, it's a little like when you have a corporation. You have a corporation that's been there for 100 years, let's say, and you have very well-integrated staff, but then you hire a few new summer interns, and then, then things get rough. The first people you let go are not the people at the foundation of your company, but the summer interns, first the, the last in, first out principle. And I think that's the same thing can be applied to the integrity of different genes. You know that you have about 20,000 genes and in your in your cell and then there's always kinds of mutations that are always being repaired mutations and repaired and it's not too hard to think that some of those genes are very well prepared and very well repaired all the time and says hey i don't want this gene anything to happen to this gene and other genes say, well you know let's it doesn't matter what happens to here so much so if that's the case then the well repaired and well-maintained cells are the ones that are at the basis of what life is and the more recent ones the summer interns you know their offices aren't cleaned out as well or as nicely if that if that analogy can be applied to the maintenance of the integrity of genes of cells then it seems then cancer can be explained in that model because the hayflick limit the more recently evolved suppression of cellular proliferation and differentiation uh those are the things that go first. They're the summer interns, and the things that are more fundamental are the things that cancer still knows how to do. So it, what you're saying is that what was a successful strategy for life? Uh, this is a metazoa, pre-metazoa, if I got the term right? Well, metazoa is a fancy word for a, a more generic word yeah, for animals. Okay, before, just during the period or areas of single cell, before multicellular life appeared, mm-hmm. uh, what was successful then is no longer successful now. Well, and it is, but we have maintained that, for example, in linings of your mouth that there you but that's a limited application well it has to do with whenever there's inflammation and whenever there's repair that's need to be done but that ancient programming remains in each of our cells and is turned off uh, until the cancer situation it's usually turned off except for example for example when you have an egg cell that's implanting itself into into a uterus then they have to go matter of fact the i what what a an egg does inside of a uterus is very much what cancer is doing it's almost unregulated proliferation It sends in vascularization into the wall of the womb, and then, boom, then comes the regulation and has to stop. But you can imagine if that process did not stop, then you'd have the unregulated cellular 
proliferation and you'd have a cancer rather than a new baby. So I think you, you were saying in earlier shows that the conventional model of cancer is like an internal Darwinism yeah. that something triggers the cell to, well, it's like a new behavior, I think is... That's right. The conventional model is that uh, there is no evolutionary understanding to it because doctors do not study evolution. And uh, what you have is a gene and then it gets randomly mutated. And when you get a lot of variation, you then get selection, selection, selection. And then the things that get left are, are survive, that do survive uh, are the, are, is cancer. As if it's newly invented out of random variation in each person. And that I just think is a silly idea, but that is the standard idea. Uh, okay, you might have preempted my next question, which was going to be, is it an either-or situation? Can you have some cancer which does result from so-called internal Darwinism? Well, to get from a well-regulated cell to a cancerous cell, you need to have some type of mutations going on, and that that but what the, what our model has in it is that the mutations do not affect every single gene equally now if you look at the uh, if you look at uh, compare your genome to a chimpanzee genome or a monkey genome or a, or even a plant uh, you can see that some genes you share about 50% of your genes with bananas uh, but the other genes have varied and varied and varied so some genes are very well conserved and others are not now I think that is also true of of the of your body now. I mean, you have cells in which there are many mutations, cells that there are fewer mutations. But I do not think, and this hasn't been checked carefully, but the hypothesis is that the genes that are well protected are not are better maintained by your body and therefore have are susceptible to fewer mutations, while the more recently ones that have evolved, that means the last 500 million years, are less protected. Now, that is a test. It's a prediction, but it hasn't been, uh, been uh, looked at carefully yet. I mean, this just opens up so many questions. I've got to kind of order myself in, in terms of which ones I'm going to ask first. But the, the first thing that, that interests me is this idea of a gene being protected and, and the implications that, that you're sort of putting forward are that these more ancient genes would be more protected. Mm -hmm. Differentially maintained as well. My understanding of the driving forces of evolution are that things that are called upon more often for the function of uh, an organism are the things that are most highly conserved. So certainly within a single protein, the regions of that gene that are most necessary for protein function are the regions that are most conserved. Mm -hmm. And anything that isn't being constantly called upon to uh, you know, aid in the survival of an organism is left behind to deteriorate. If it's not used at all at any time during the development of that individual, that's right. Sure. So, so I guess the, the argument here, um, so for example, uh, we've just gotten a tweet again um, pointing out that blastocyte adhesion apparently is a very highly regulated process. Um, so whether that is before or after, uh, as you said, the vascularization. Um, but but even, in even in unicellular organisms, there is a very, very high degree of, of regulation. Cells don't just randomly um, divide. Well, there's no Hayflick limit. The Hayflick limit is about you, you go to 40 divisions and then you're done. For example, the shortening of telomeres, yeah. for example. And, bio and the bacteria don't have that. They just can divide, 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 divide. Of course, they are somewhat susceptible to whether there's food available or not. Yeah, if I none, mean, they, they don't divide, and that's what you might call that regulation. But it's not a, it's not like the hate flick limit. They no. don't die. We die, and the reason we die is because we're passing on our germ cells, and the somatic cells are susceptible to only you know being having this forty divisions and or, or and limited to that. Um, but what our, what we did for, uh, three billion years ago was divide, 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 divide. Mm. With much less regulation than our cells have today. Certainly. Um, if Rod will allow me to digress into sort of the philosophy of science, is that, do I have permission, Rod? Well, uh, can we sort of defer that on briefly? I just oh. would like. Uh oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, what sort of reception have you and Paul Davies had to this? Uh, to your theories, because you are a physicist, not not, not oncologist or, or biologist. What, 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 you, know, you put this out amongst the biological community. What reception have you got? That was my question, Rod. <laughs> That's what I wanted to ask. Sorry, I didn't right. frame it well. Continue. Right. I would say strongly mixed. Uh, the, you have to realize the cancer community, I mean, when somebody dies of cancer, they say, you know, this is a terrible thing. I've got a billion dollars. Let's donate what I have my money to cancer research. So cancer research does get a lot of money and I think the problem there is uh, do they have a, I, well 
the short answer is very strongly mixed. People who have, like I said, the most cancer biologists believe in this model of random mutation and then selection. We call it internal Darwinism. That is during the few decades that you have these cells that are being susceptible to the mutations, being selected, 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 and then at the end of that selection process, the properties that these cells have uh, are the results of this selection process. In our model, those properties are already there. They're just suppressed, and what's happening is the suppression mechanisms are getting mutated away. Uh, and then up comes... It's kind of like uh, the difference between writing a poem uh, spontaneously... And, and having a chest full of poems and then opening the door and picking one out. All, and we think that the cancer mechanisms, the abilities of cancer, are these older mechanisms. And one prediction is that that cancer will never do anything that's a, a normal cell in your body can't already do. That's so, a very, very specific prediction that needs to be tested more. So one of the things I really wanted to, to ask about is how this model came to be what was the process was it sitting down and having discussions was it thought experiments how how did you and um professor davies actually get to a point where you were willing to to sort of reawaken the atavistic model um, and present it to the scientific community again well i i wouldn't say it again because i, I haven't seen it uh, developed in any extent before but i would say that uh we're astrobiologists, and so when you're astrobiologists, you're wondering about life elsewhere. And if you want to know about life elsewhere, you have to understand how life on this planet emerged and evolved. So that means when you study life, you're studying 4 billion years, not a million years and not 10,000 years. Most, For example, if you go to the biology department at ANU, there's hardly anybody who talks about life three billion years ago or two billion years ago. Most people are studying what happened, you know, a million years ago, 10 million, 100, and 99% are post-Cambrian biologists. Now, this is something that, that the cancer model, however, and, and cell regulation and the cell cycle, this, this proliferation that we're talking about, that cancer, that oncologists are so, uh, they've taken that, that I'm trying, what, what oncologists are trying to do is interfere with the cell cycle. We call that interfere targeting the strengths of cancer because that cell cycle is a very, very deep thing. Um, we, we, our most recent article is uh, how to attack the, the weakness of cancer, not the strengths. Uh, but you asked how did we get to this idea. By studying the, this long-term history of, of, of evolution of life on this planet and realizing that when we did talk to doctors and oncologists that they didn't study evolution at all. So evolution of human beings or anybody or anything played almost zero role in their education and therefore z they were zero informed about if there was an evolutionary origin to cancer, they were completely oblivious to it. And that's what said, whoa, we do have something to contribute to this. Yeah, and I think I think that idea of cross-pollination between disciplines is is incredibly fundamental to science, and and certainly there's there's a lot to be gained from conversations across disciplines. And and as you say, if you feel as though there's something that can be contributed to a field, it's it's almost your duty to do so. Um, so my next question would be, what in in the so it was about 2011 when you when you first sort of put this forward. Since then, what evidence have you found that fits? your model. So uh, my understanding of being a theorist is you propose a hypothesis and then you find mm. components that support that. Could I, could I say fits or contradicts? Mm. Yeah. yeah, we're looking for stuff that contradicts. Uh, so far, we just see things that are consistent with it. Now, the, I guess the main, I mean, to build this model and develop it, you, of course, you have to make, remain consistent with all the new uh, ideas that are coming out of oncology. And so the one thing that would contradict it, if there were any abilities of cancer, that the cells in your body that could not be associated with the normal function of the cells of your body. And then people say, oh, cancer does this or cancer does this. And then immediately say, well, that's different. But then they say, oh, by the way, the the cellular uh, process that, or the mechanism that is being used to give cancer this ability is something that is turned on during X, Y, and Z. It's either inflation, uh, inflammation, wound healing, or during embryogenesis, for example. So if there were an ability of cancer that could not be associated with that, that would contradict the theory. And so when somebody says, oh, this, this mechanism is what cells do here, this mechanism, what's, this cancer mechanism is what cells normally do here, I mean, you could call that evidence for it, but you could just say, oh, that's just, it's passing the consistency test. One thing that we're trying to do and that we've done partially is try to figure out the ages of genes, the, the evolutionary uh, 
chronology in which different genes have evolved is something, you know, we've got 20,000 genes. Some are new and some were, have been around for three, four billion years. Mm. So the question is, well, let's establish that chronology. Let's get that. And we can do that by doing the following test. And that is, here's a gene. Is it in the chimpanzees? Is it in dogs? Is it in jellyfish? Is it in C. elegans? Is it in bacteria? So by comparing a particular gene and its homologs, it can you recognize it in these other organisms? If you can recognize it in all organisms, then boom, it's a deep one. Mm. If you can only recognize it in chimpanzees, it's very shallow. If you can recognize it only back to dogs, then it's about 100 million years old. So establishing the chronology, the ages, is a very difficult thing to do, but it's doable, mm. is an important piece of information that we need to, to because it makes our theory predictable. Mm. Um, and that's being done. We've uh, gotten some evidence there, but uh, I'm dissatisfied with some of the results. That was some of the, let's say, the, some of the bioinformatician expertise <laughs> that has been applied to this. I'm trying right now to get Ross Hannon, at the, who's uh, the new director of cancer research sure. at the at the, the John Curtin School of Medical Research to get interested in this. So uh, I guess I, I'd find it very surprising if, if in a phylogenetic analysis like that you you found that gene uh, you know cell replication was anything but ancient. Of course. I of mean, course. It's yes, sort of but the here's the thing. The cancer, thing. But cancer gets gets more and more and more severe. You get advanced, there's stages mm. of cancer. So can't, the de-differentiation goes through stages. You have oh, mildly cancer and then you get stronger and stronger and stronger. And so the idea is that that uh, uh, development of cancer as it gets worse and worse is going backwards ev in the evolutionary time mm. um, and so it the most severe cancer is the least differentiated now people who look at cancer cells to you know send in a wart and say okay what stage is this uh, then that's exactly how they do that how undifferentiated is it if you can tell that it's kind of a skin cell or it's kind of a brain cell then it's the early stages if you said I have no idea this is de-differentiated to such extent then it's really severe cancer now our prediction is that the Genes that are responsible for the most severe, the advanced stages of cancer are the ones that are the most ancient. The ones in the middle are the more recent, and the mm -hmm. ones that are new are the most the ones that have been mutated to give cancer abilities uh, that that are just starting. Those are the new ones. So it's a chronology, and it's very predictive. The normal model of cancer is completely unpredictable. Oh, mutation, mutation, oh, and then selection, mutation, mutation, selection. There's no prediction in that at all. So ours is a very predictive model, but in order to test it, you need to go into the details of what cell cancer cells are doing at various stages and then see what those which genes are being operative and then compare it to the to the chronology that you've established beforehand that is work in progress but as i said most cancer most oncologists are strongly married to this traditional view which i find kind of crazy it's un uninformed completely by evolution and i think it's uh, it's almost silly but i'm doing my best to talk to people about it they often I, I get a hearing, but then they say, oh, you forgot about this, you forgot about this. And I said, well, does that matter? And then we talk, and then Anyway, it's an ongoing conversation, but it's still, a, I feel like, a, a, a slightly lone voice here with Paul Davies, but not completely. There are a lot of, uh, w well, not a lot, but some people are starting to take up this. this uh, well, well, Charlie, I think any ideas that really change the fundamentals of something in science or, or any other field, in fact, they invariably are more difficult, and you should expect it to be uh, a difficult Oh, slot. I do, I do, and, and it might be wrong. <laughs> well, that's... Uh, <laughs> That, that's in the back but, of our but minds. But it's worth testing, and I think that, that it should be tested, and it's easy to test. And in testing, even if it is wrong, the test will lead to so much new information that uh, it's just good science, and I wish I could convince so, some so oncologists to, to accept. We put in some applications, and they so far one or two applications, they haven't been successful. So the worst thing that could happen is you might be wrong. So it has a parallel to the I second. I would say it's worse. I would say, <laughs> uh, it, by, you know, it's important to, to make progress in science that you have, make a hypothesis, you stick your way out and then you either hey it's right or you get your head chopped off and it's important to do that I think it's, it's fair to say the worst thing that could happen is for no one to be interested either way <laughs> because right, right. then it fades into nothingness but certainly the, the science as you say that can be gained in either proving or disproving a hypothesis I, yeah, is, I, is I think that's right Eleanor the, the most interesting thing in science I think is the question a lot of the time because you won't get the Nobel Prize just for an answer because the answer always follows a question <laughs> assuming you get one 
in fact, I was, you, you've touched on a question I was going to ask you, Charlie, and that is you, you took, you and Paul Davies took a bit of a risk. Does it feel like that when you put this idea out there? Oh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, as scientists, you're supposed to come up with ideas that are consistent with everything we know, and that, I think, is the case about this model, and uh, that's what we're doing. I know we don't have much time left, but I think one of the, the most important questions and one that the public would be the most interested in, if this model is accurate and there is evidence that's collated in the future that, that verifies it, how will that change how we approach cancer? Right. Well, the main approach to cancer is to identify the proliferation and to stop it. And that, because proliferation is such a basic feature of all life on this earth, we're essentially get, there's a, a knight in armor and we continue to stick it at its most um, most impregnable spot, and that is the deepest embedded, most conserved, that is proliferation. What, what The second paper that we wrote uh, about a year ago says we should not be doing that. That's attacking the strengths of cancer. We should be attacking the weakness of cancer. And the weaknesses are the inability of those cells to do what modern evolution has given the normal cells the ability to do. Uh, what the main example of that is the innate immune system is very old, the adaptive immune system is very new. Cancer cells seem to be, uh, don't talk to the adaptive immune system. So what you need to do is get some weapon that is able to kill cells that do not have access to the adaptive immune system. And uh, so that's what you need to do. That's when we, we discussed that over in about two pages in the paper. Well, we, uh, we've got plenty more to talk about, Charlie, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back again, again and because this is a fascinating topic. And we never run out of things to talk about. I'm just handing over the, uh, the uh, studio console here, a, a little cartoon, and maybe get Eleanor to describe what she can see because I think it's got a nice little science bent yeah. to it. Comics are, are really good for radio uh, as a media. <laughs> So, um, hmm, I, well, I don't really know. It's, it's, it's a, a couple, couple of, of scientists, and I think they've they've hit upon one of the key aspects of of a lot of a lot of our discipline, well, which is then a miracle occurs. I think you could be more explicit here well, in step two. We should explain there's a couple of scientists and they're standing in front of a chalkboard with lots of complicated equations and when they're scratching their head and then it says, one bloke says to the other, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. And step two says, and then a miracle occurs. Uh, and of course, miracles are what we resort to when we don't have an answer that science can give us. That's a Sidney Harris cartoon. He's very good. It's, it's, it's pretty clever. All Right now, so we're we're running to the end of our time here, and uh, it's been a fascinating show. But there's lots of things happening at the moment with uh, Fuzzy Logic, and as uh, we, as you know, we're now on Twitter, which is pretty exciting, and we'll, we shall continue to use that in future programs. Thanks for your contacts. Thanks, Jenny, for the music. Uh, now, check today's Canberra Times because Katie, that's my daughter, science fiction, not science fiction, a fantasy novelist, has written a story about wombats. Wombats are in big trouble. I'm afraid, and uh, we went to the sanctuary, the wombat sanctuary out near uh, uh, Gundaroo, and it's a bit of a sad story, so check the camera times. Also, while you're there, uh, our friend of Fuzzy Phil Hall from the National Dinosaur Museum has written a story about the passenger pigeon. Those things are great. Clouds, swarms, millions of these things, and then they went extinct. I have one in the works for next Sunday, which is Why Don't We Remember Dreams? And interesting dreams, a lot of anti-science, non-science in there, but uh, my friend uh, Dr. Glenn Billsborough has given us a really interesting answer to that question. Another one on the go. It's got all sorts of facets, and some would be for you, Charlie, and that's about the hiss you hear on the radio when you're not quite on the channel. It's got a few facets. One is about how we hear the uh, audio response, the frequency range of uh, radio, particularly the AM channel. And Eleanor, you're writing one for us on cyanide and yeah. why you shouldn't be drinking it. <laughs> Unless you're a, a, a Nazi on the way out. Thank you very much, Charlie Lineweaver. You're yeah. welcome, Rod. It's been a huge pleasure, and we always enjoy our talks. And this will be up on podcast soon. Catch you later. Uh,